Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. Max Moran writes in an article in American Prospect titled, We Don't Have to Live in Mitch McConnell's World, quote, it's important to recognize that the idea of hopelessness around a Biden cabinet is nonsense. Biden has several tools available to him to circumvent McConnell's Senate and still appoint the cabinet secretaries he needs. And to have any hope of Democratic victory in 2022 and 2024, Biden must not only build a functional Rooseveltian government, but he must take public credit for it and publicly jeer those who would stand in his way. Now joining us to discuss just what Biden could do, if he wanted to, is Max Moran. He's a research assistant at the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I've been watching a lot of Fox News these days. I'm and, sorry and for you. Well, actually, I find it more interesting than CNN and MSNBC, which is I find mostly nauseating. Fair. Uh, and Fox, uh, I said to Taibi, Matt Taibi, at least there's the odd surprise on Fox. Uh, uh, like the night of the election, Fox was very pro-Biden, which was interesting. Um, I think Murdoch Empire is getting ready for the Trump media empire. So they're getting ready to start trashing Trump mm. as, a, as a competitor. Mm. Um but the speculation on the on the uh, Fox News panels when discussing the issue of the cabinet appointments and generally Biden working with the Senate and the fact that it's not impossible that the uh, Democrats might still take the Senate if they win the uh, runoff races in Georgia. And the Fox people are speculating, well, maybe Biden would rather have a Republican Senate and have that as sort of an excuse for why he can't do the stuff the progressives are really pushing him to do. I, I don't know that Biden would really do that. I assume he would rather be able to do something than just be a, a half a lame duck uh, president. But your whole point of what you've been researching is he doesn't have to be half a lame duck president just because the Republicans have, have the Senate. So let's assume Biden actually does want to do something uh, who knows, Roosevelt, it might be uh, too much to hope for. But let's say there's a, such pressure on him, uh, both from the progressives, from a people's movement, from their concern about what's going to happen in the elections, to deep, deep economic depression. And, and the crisis is such that it actually not only cries out for some kind of Rooseveltian style approach, uh, that there might even be some political room for him to do it. So let's, in short, what can he do? Let's start with the cabinet. What can he do without the Senate? How can Biden govern, govern as if the Senate doesn't exist? That's what I would argue for. There is a surprisingly large uh, number of things and number of paths that he can take uh, without ever having to go through the Senate in order to uh, govern and in order to actually accomplish a lot of really big things. Um, as we've been researching, uh, Biden basically does not have to go anywhere near the Senate in order to install a cabinet if he doesn't want to. He has two different paths for doing that. Uh, first, he can use the Vacancies Act. Uh, this is 
the reason why all of these Trump appointees have the word acting in front of their titles is because Trump has aggressively used the Vacancies Act. It basically lets you uh, either put a different Senate-confirmed person in charge of a cabinet job. So you could take like the Democratic commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission, for instance, and say, hey, you're temporarily the Secretary of Commerce. Um, or you can elevate... So when somebody's been approved by the Senate, it's up to the president what actual job they have. Uh, well, the um, under the Vacancies Act, you can temporarily make someone uh, put someone into a different job. Uh, you would nominate someone through the Senate for a very specific thing. But once someone has been confirmed, like these uh, commissioners on these multi-person agencies, uh, then with the Vacancies Act, you can put them in charge of whatever you want on a temporary basis. Um, uh, you can do that or just, just let me stop you for a second. Why did Trump use this when he had, when the Republicans controlled the Senate? Simply laziness and the fact that someone might ask hard questions of the people whom he appointed and he can't stand the idea of anyone ever criticizing or questioning him. This is the, uh, the ethos of running the government like a business. Well, the CEO of business isn't used to having people ever question him, uh, even though, Obviously, the Republican sycophants in the Senate are going to confirm whoever Trump puts forward. Uh, you know, he just didn't want to have to go through the work of having to actually dot his I's, cross his T's, and get full confirmation for uh, the people in each of these different jobs. Uh, so he's been running around using these acting secretary positions for no reason other than that he just didn't want to do the work. So, in other words, Republicans have spent four years basically. Uh, being completely fine with a president aggressively using the Vacancies Act for their own purposes. They're in no position to complain when Biden does it. They're going to complain anyways, but Biden just shouldn't bother listening to them because clearly they have no standing on this uh, or on most else, but we'll get into that. Um, so he can use that. Uh, he can also uh, take a civil servant, like a, a career employee within uh, the Treasury Department or Commerce or what have you, uh, and temporarily elevate them into the top job, also under the Vacancies Act. Uh, and the final path that he can take uh, is he can f basically force the Senate into an adjournment using a, a clause in the Constitution. And while the uh, be, 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 before, before you go there, he can use the Vacancy Act at any time, even if the Senate is in session? Yes, at any time, no matter what. All that he has to do is say that he is invoking his powers under the Vacancies Act to make someone into an acting uh, Treasury Secretary, and acting what have you, uh, and either, again, uh, bring in a commissioner from a different agency, uh, or elevate a civil servant up to the, uh, up to the secretary job. Um, I'm assuming this did, doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. Does not apply to the Supreme Court, sadly. There's no way around. But every, but every, but everything else. Yes, uh, everything that's within the executive branch, you can do it. Um, okay, go on. Uh, Door number two. Yes, path number two is uh, you can force the Senate into an adjournment using an unusual clause in the Constitution. Um, this would require a little bit of what they call constitutional hardball. Again, this is what Mitch McConnell does all the time. It's past time for Democrats to say, if you're going to do it, we'll do it too. Uh, if, you know, Biden actually believes in a, in bipartisanship and in like meeting Republicans while they are, well, here's where Republicans are. Um, while the Senate is in adjournment, uh, if it's for more than 10 days, which Biden has the power to force the Senate into adjournment for however long he wants to, um, you can appoint someone again to an acting secretary role. Uh, in this case, it can be whoever you want. It doesn't have to be a 
uh, civil servants or or different official, you can uh, appoint anybody that you want, same as you would for a normal Senate confirmation. Um, those are the two main paths that are available to him to basically avoid having to play Mitch McConnell's game, avoid having to either bend over backwards and appoint a bunch of corporate lobbyists who probably are still going to get blocked anyways because it's Mitch McConnell and he just lives to block anyone who has the word D next to their name. Um, and instead, uh, Biden can appoint these figures uh, and he can use them to execute on a surprisingly large number of things that you can do solely through executive power. So and just to be clear, in the second option, he can force an adjournment and, and then that appointment lasts until the next session of Congress. Yes, uh, until and which case, and he could do it all over again. You can do it all over again. Precisely. So you don't need the Senate to appoint people is what it amounts to. Effectively, yes. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of extra steps that you have to go through in order to um, do it this way. But, you know, it's a couple of extra hoops to jump through and then you've got a functioning government. And when has it been done or has it been done? The door number two, the forced adjournment. So the forced adjournment has never been done before. Um, that is under a clause in the Constitution that basically says that uh, if the House and the Senate can't agree uh, on when and whether they want to adjourn, then the president gets to be the deciding factor in there. So Biden would need uh, the Speaker of the House to um, essentially force, uh, to, to essentially say to Mitch McConnell, uh, I want to adjourn Congress for at least 10 days, probably more. Uh, then either McConnell agrees to that, uh, in which case you have your adjournment and you can make your recess appointments, or McConnell disagrees or just ignores it. And in either of those cases, uh, the president then gets to be the deciding vote on whether or not Congress is going to adjourn. Uh, Biden says, okay, I have decided that we are going to adjourn Congress for however many days, at least 10, uh, in which case you have your adjournments and you can do whatever you want. And it's never been done. And what's the likelihood the Supreme Court would find it constitutional? Like how clear cut is what you're laying out? It's very clear cut. Uh, it's written directly into the Constitution that the president has the power to, in this circumstance, adjourn Congress to, for whatever length of time he chooses. Um, there is arguably a conservative argument that uh, you could... Um, essentially that limits the president's ability to make these types of adjournments in the first place. Um, but the way that we look at it, uh, in order for that case to get to the Supreme Court, you've already had plenty of time in order to implement your people, bring your people on, and using the, the sort of executive branch focused um, agenda that we're pushing for, uh, that's already plenty of time in order to implement the things that you're pushing for. And moreover, uh, if the Supreme Court causes you trouble, that only lends credence to the argument, which we also think that Biden should push extremely publicly, that it is time to unrig our courts, that our courts are no longer a re representation of the democratic will. But there's nothing that could be done about the Supreme Court without the Senate. Is that right? That really does require the Senate. That does require the Senate. You can like for like if they want to pack, you know, quote unquote, add some pack the court, add some, uh, uh, you know, more people to the Supreme Court. You need, that's not doable without the Senate. No, you, you need the Senate in order to pack the Supreme Court. Um, you need the Senate in order to uh, curtail or limit the Supreme Court's authority, which would also be constitutional. 
Um, now, Andrew Jackson uh, ignored certain Supreme Court decisions when he simply did not like what they called for. Uh, I do not think, nor do I necessarily want uh, Biden to just start ignoring Supreme Court decisions. But the point is that it has been done before historically. Um, again, Andrew Jackson is not the figure that we should ever want uh, a president to look to as a model. Um, but that is something which has been done before. Um, you know, these are institutions. They are not like iron laws of nature. Let me remind everybody that we're talking about what Biden could do. We're not sitting here thinking Biden's likely to do any of this precisely without enormous pressure coming from a people's movement, from progressives and so on. But that there's real options here is important because otherwise they'll claim their hands are tied and can't do anything. And, and you, your whole point is their hands are not tied. So let's, let's go further. So now he's appointed his cabinet the way he wants. Uh, you know, in, in our imaginary world, it's Rooseveltian. Uh, and now they want to do something without the Senate. So what can they do? Well, they can do a surprising amount. Um, did you know that you can eliminate 95% of student loan debt just by having the Secretary of Education sign a piece of paper? 95% um, of student loan debt is owed to the federal government through federal loan programs. Same as literally any other loan, um, a debt holder can say, you know what, I forgive this debt. I don't care about getting paid back anymore. We're just going to pretend that this, that this never happened. Uh, this is a perfectly legal, perfectly uh, simple um, action. The, uh, Biden just has to appoint a secretary of education who is willing to forgive 95% of student loan debt. Um, did you know that, uh, well, this is a, actually a pretty straightforward one, but uh, appoint a good attorney general and for one thing, clear out Trump's uh, appointees to the AG, appointments to the AG um, and, uh, and bring in your own people. And you can start prosecuting big oil companies. You can start prosecuting big pharma companies. You can start prosecuting big tech companies. You can bring a lot of really aggressive actions simply through what's on the books. Appoint a really good IRS commissioner, and you can totally reorient uh, our tax system's priorities so that instead of going after, you know, people who make mistakes on their taxes because they're busy and they're poor, you're instead going after multi-billionaires who are engaging in tax evasion, who are uh, trying to hide their funds all over the planet. Um, appoint a good EPA commissioner and you can be going into... Oh, but hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. There's nothing that could be done about the Trump tax legislation, tax cuts without the Senate. But you're saying administratively, you could shift the pendulum back some. Precisely. Uh, and it's also important to keep in mind that, especially on things as complex as tax law, an extraordinary amount of the law of what the law is in effect just comes down to what parts of the law you end up enforcing. Um, you can't, uh, without the Senate, raise the corporate tax rate, for instance, uh, but you can reorient priorities away from... Uh, you know, um, going after small ball tax evasion, small ball mistakes on people's taxes, uh, and going towards the actually quite significant number of tools that are on the books uh, in order to crack down on uh, people hiding money in offshore bank accounts, um, in order to crack down on, uh, on corporations who are uh, using various tax loopholes in order to hide money all around the world. Um, 
so you can't reverse the Trump tax cuts without the Senate, uh, but you can reorient the uh, IRS's enforcement mechanism in order to really go after and quite significantly change if you if you have if you had the right person who's leading it in the right way, um, quite significantly change wealth inequality in this country. Go on. What else? <laughs> you know, you have to, you have a list of two hundred and seventy-seven things that could be done. Yes. Uh, so I developed a list a few months ago of two hundred and seventy-seven um, actions that are in the Biden Sanders Unity Task Force documents. So these are actions that have buy-in from basically across the entire Democratic Party, and which you can do just through executive branch powers by putting the right people in the right places. Uh, so these are really 277. And we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to this list in the transcript of the interview. Go on. Um, so these are really 277 things uh, that have very broad buy-in across the Democratic Party. And the only thing that is keeping Biden from doing them is Biden. Um, then on top of that, there's a lot of other things that um, Biden can do solely through executive branch powers uh, that uh would have a transformative effect on the country that he just hasn't necessarily shown an interest in yet but with but which you can pressure him into doing uh antitrust law breaking up monopoly well, the most ur- the most urgent thing is climate yes and he says he wants to have this massive uh stimulus plan infrastructure plan that will be green um and of course the, even if biden wants to do this his inclination going to be to do this in a way that's very collaborative with the financial sector. And that's a whole nother issue. What's actually effective green infrastructure program and what's a cash cow for people to make a lot of money that might not wind up being that effective. But set aside that argument for now. If the Senate uh, really gets becomes an obstruction to even any big infrastructure program, and there's a lot of these deficit hawks still in the Republican Party, uh, that they, they weren't that active under a Trump administration, but they might all of a sudden austerity and and the and the debt might all of a sudden worry them because they're not running the White House anymore. What what can be done on the climate front without uh, without the approval of the Senate? Well, a good amount of Biden's uh, climate plan that he put out actually runs largely through executive branch powers and. Also, these are the parts of it that overlap with tackling inequality. Uh, these are things like a massive expansion in government contracting powers in order to uh, th- do things like build out an entirely green fleet of, of federal vehicles, in order to do things like um, build out uh, publicly subsidized energy uh, that's green energy in order to go into communities and work with them to build uh, climate transfer programs. All of these things are done through the executive branch. The executive branch handles spending within the government. Um, we uh, know that there's a lot of power that you can uh, wield in order to green uh, the country, in order to green the planet, uh, if you simply have climate warriors controlling uh, how the government handles its finances. So if you appoint a climate warrior to the Office of Management and Budget, for instance, the, the part of the government that handles government spending. If you have the right person in these places, then uh, you can ensure that the government is only contracting with and is only building out green infrastructure, is only building out um, green parts of these various plans. 
uh, you mentioned Wall Street earlier. There's going to be a massive. Uh, let, let me. Well, just 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 before you, before you do Wall Street, the, one of the obvious ones he can do through executive order, I would think, is restructure the Pentagon budget and one make that greening prog- process that's happening in the Pentagon much more urgent and much broader. Now, of course, they should cut the Pentagon budget by I don't know, you know, ninety percent would suit me. But uh, I don't suppose you can completely change the budget of the Pentagon without the Senate, but you could certainly change how the money's being spent, or can you? Yeah, you can change uh, large amounts of how the money is spent. Uh, some of the money is uh, specifically set up through Congress in terms of this is specifically allocated to building out this number of this many jets, that kind of thing. But a large amount of it is also basically, we're going to give you this sum of, this sum of money, you do what you want with it. Uh, that applies to the Pentagon, that applies across the federal government. All of that money, uh, you know, all of that money has to run through OMB. And if you get the right person at OMB, then all of that money can go towards green energy. All that money can go towards green projects. Okay, go back to Wall Street. (laughs) Uh, Yes, um, climate finance is going to be a major issue in the upcoming years. uh, Because as we've seen, especially in the COVID-19 pandemic, Big oil just isn't profitable like it used to be, and it's be, and it's reliant very heavily on uh, on Wall Street and on the financial industry in order to prop itself up. Um, if you get green warriors at uh, the Treasury Department, at the SEC, at the OCC, at all the financial regulators, you can use those very broad powers because the financial regulators have extremely broad leeway within their respective areas. Um, to implement rules, implement changes to how Wall Street conducts its business that forces them, basically makes it unprofitable for them to ever invest in big oil again. Um, basically makes it unprofitable for them to uh, invest in um, in any field which, uh, which exacerbates the climate crisis. Um, again, these are going to be very hard-fought battles because Wall Street understands very directly the power of these agencies. Um, but, but there's actually a little bit of cause for hope on this. Uh, Biden has named Gary Gensler, who was a, a warrior for the good guys, uh, back in 2008 as his person who's overseeing the survey of the financial regulators in order to just sort of figure out what's the state of these agencies is and what our, our priorities should be going forward. He used to head up the, uh, commodities, uh, future commodity future exchange trading in Chicago. Commission. Yes, right? yes, precisely. Yes. Um, yeah, and they they are they were quite act they were quite activists uh, in terms of dealing with the concentration of ownership in the commodities uh, markets. Yes, Gensler is definitely someone who is going to be willing to talk to the left, who is going to be taking very seriously issues like climate change. Um, if he uh, if he you know returns with reviews and returns with recommendations that are taken seriously, you can end up with really really great financial regulators. If you end up with great financial regulators, you can have a transformative effect on the American economy. So so let's just go back to Gary Gensler again because that's that's actually I didn't know that and that's quite significant. So what has he been exactly appointed to? Because that that's a fairly progressive appointment. It is. Um, Gens. So Biden hasn't named. Uh, the specific heads of his specific agencies yet. That's probably going to be coming uh, either late November, early December, if this uh, ends up going along the same timeline as uh, as Obama did. Um, Gensler is essentially in charge of what are called the landing rooms or the landing parties, rather. Um, 
for for the financial regulatory agencies. So these are the people who are designated to go into each of these agencies and to say, okay, what's going on here? What are the current regs? What are the current rules? What's the current staff looking like? And so on. Uh, in order to ease the transition process. Now, you're going to have a problem in that Trump is a child and is not going to want to work alongside Biden or alongside Biden's people to provide them with information. But either way, Gensler is now the person who's in charge of reporting back to the Biden people, okay, this is the story at the financial regulatory agencies. Um, And uh, here's what I would recommend uh, going forward. This also puts him in a very good position to say, I would like to be an SEC commissioner, or I would like to have a major job within Treasury or so on, because obviously he knows the ins and outs of these agencies at this point. Um, that means that like, you know, the person who is framing for Biden, uh, what's the current status of American financial regulation looks like, is someone who's a progressive ally. Uh, that's definitely cause for hope. And do we know who chose Gensler? Is that Biden or, is there, or who's who's in Biden's team that would have known to pick Gensler? Uh, I don't know who specifically picked Gensler. Uh, I know that the person who is leading Biden's transition is Ted Kaufman, who was very much uh, on the good side in 2008. Uh, he temporarily replaced Biden in the Senate when Biden became the vice president. Uh, and Gensler was fighting hard for... Um, uh, a something approximating a Glass-Steagall Act um, in order to separate investment banking from commercial banking. Um, and he was also and has been a very open critic of corruption and of the revolving door uh, and of sort of business as usual within D.C. The Commodities Exchange, uh, Gensler and Bart Chilton that was working with them, they took a very good position on position limits that you couldn't have any single individual or enterprise own too much of any specific commodity. Um, they wound up, I think, actually losing that fight after passing it. They, I think they lost in federal court. Uh, but they tried to go back to Rooseveltian style legislation that limited how much control anybody could have over a specific commodity. I mean, we're talking food here and things like that. It's not just some abstraction of commodities. Like people could buy up 20, 30, 40% of corn or wheat or something and start controlling the price. And they were pushing back on that. But what, define what you what you mean by on the good side of 2008. I, I know what you're talking about, but makes, let's make sure everyone listening does. Uh, Kaufman was fighting for a stimulus and for a uh, response to the financial crisis that was not about uh, bailing out the big banks. That was not about uh, just making sure that the biggest banks and the, and the richest folks uh, get to hold on to their money, but was instead about first and foremost helping out average people, making sure that average people aren't going to be aren't going to lose their jobs, aren't going to be harmed by um, uh, by reckless activity on Wall Street, and second of all about saying, okay, what the hell happened here uh, with this financial crisis, and what are we going to do to prevent this from happening again, whether Wall Street wants it or not. That is a very rare position for someone to stake out in Washington. Now, of course, one of the big appointments is going to be at the Fed if he wants to. Um, where, where, where does that seem to be leaning? Uh, it's unclear as far as the Fed goes. Um, we can say that uh, there's reports that Janet Yellen wants to be Treasury Secretary, uh, which would be interesting, and she is being taken seriously within the Biden camp. Um it's unclear, uh, you know, if um, 
if the current Fed's chairman uh, wants to stay on uh, or what that fight would specifically look like. Um, there's a lot more hubbub and a lot more conversation about uh, Treasury Secretary at the moment, either uh, for Yellen. Well, one of the one of the, apparently one of the lo- lobbying efforts going on is there either Larry Fink himself, the head of BlackRock, or a Larry Fink ally, because apparently Fink has been getting ready for this uh, fight to try to get he or hit one of his people at Treasury. Uh, just uh, anyone that follows the analysis knows I talk about BlackRock all the time because it's the biggest asset management company. They got something like $7 trillion under management and have enormous clout in the markets and in the politics. Uh, and if this becomes a straight Wall Street appointment, that's going to mean we're looking at an Obama type of uh, economic policy that helped till the soil for Trump. Um, if it's not a straight Wall Street appointment, then maybe Biden or the people talking to Biden actually do want to go in at least in a slightly different direction, hopefully more than slightly. Uh, but I, I, progressives wouldn't be aghast at Yellen, right? She wouldn't be like a straight Wall Street flack, or would she? No, no. Progressives would be uh, would be okay with Yellen, I suppose. Um, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that Biden is looking for a way to thread the needle on Treasury. Um, he knows that he can't get Larry Fink in office. He knows that. Uh, most almost certainly a Larry Fink flack would also trigger just as large of, uh, of a pushback. And uh, progressives are actively looking into which Larry, which Larry Fink stooges are most likely to try to get XYZ position and are getting ready to, to have those particular fights as well. Um, but the fact that Yellen is in consideration means that Biden is taking quite seriously the notion that, no, there are actually two different perspectives on this within the Democratic Party, and he should try to find someone who can at least be acceptable to both of them. So I think that Yellen would be a very smart pick if that's his goal. Are you hearing anything serious about a Warren or even a Sanders in the cabinet? Uh, they both certainly want it. Uh, it seems unlikely, uh, especially if, um, I mean, Absolutely. Uh, if the Democrats pull off a clean sweep in Georgia and manage to have a 50-50 Senate with um, uh, the vice president as a tie-breaking vote, in that case, you can't afford to give up any seats whatsoever. Except if it's in a state with a Democratic governor, they can know ahead of time that the appointee that's replaced will be a Democrat. So they don't have to worry that much. Yes, but both Massachusetts and Vermont have Republican governors right now. Um, oh, okay. Well, that shows my ignorance. Go on. <laughs> you're all good. No worries. Um, uh, I think much more likely is that they'll both be pressing to install some of their allies in various jobs. Um, there's already conversations about that. Already, um, uh, members of the transition team, the the Biden transition team, some of them came directly from Elizabeth Warren's campaign or are longtime allies of hers. Um, Bernie's team, I don't know as much, but I would assume that they're making the same types of outreach, the same types of considerations. Um, I think much you're already seeing uh, Warren pivoting, at least on Twitter, but that's like a presage to things in, within the Senate, uh, to making it very clear that she will not in any way allow uh, Biden to appoint lobbyists without a very significant fight. Um, so that, I think, is where the conversation goes. You were about to talk about antitrust um, and there was a recent report from one of the Senate committees on antitrust. It's been a lot of talk about breaking up big tech 
Uh, certainly Sanders in the past has talked about breaking up big banks. I don't think Biden's ever talked about anything like that. But what can be done in terms of antitrust without the Senate? Antitrust falls entirely within the executive branch domain because the way that you break up a company is that you bring a lawsuit about it. Uh, who brings that lawsuit? The DOJ. Um, so while it would be nice to be able to pass new antitrust statutes in order to clarify intent, in order to, to override certain things, you can absolutely bring uh, new cases. You can continue the ongoing Google case right now. Uh, and you can bring cases against the banks, against big ag, against all of these corporate monoliths that are controlling the economy right now. Um, and again, you can very aggressively message that this is what you're doing, which is maybe just as important. Uh, if you want to retake the Senate, and you should, uh, in 2022 and 2024, then I would argue that you absolutely need to both be doing things that help average people, things like student debt forgiveness and so on, uh, and also be aggressively messaging, I am doing this for you. I'm doing this because I care about you. Mitch McConnell does not. Mitch McConnell wants you to struggle through this pandemic, struggle through this recession, struggle through climate change, struggle through racial injustice. But I'm trying to fight for you. I need your help. Help me to flip this Senate. Uh, that, I think, is the only way that Democrats can have even the tiniest chance uh, of actually taking back the full government and finally delivering the change that we need. What can be done in terms of health care through executive order? Anything? Uh, it's a little complex. Um, you can use marching rights on vaccines and I believe also on certain uh, medications to essentially say, uh, if the government helps to fund the creation of this and the COVID-19 vaccine applies here, then the people who the government represents uh, are entitled to access to it. Um, this is a tool that has been on the books for a long time. It has been gone wildly underused, wildly underutilized. Um, I believe there are some changes you can make to uh, patent monopolies and copyright law in order to uh, provide similar effects. Um, I'm sure that there are some tweaks that you can make within uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, as far as administration of those programs. Um, healthcare is not my particular field of specialty, uh, but I know that there are a significant number of powers on the books that have gone underutilized. If Biden were to declare, for example, the COVID is a national emergency, and I'm not sure what the technical term is, but whatever that is, does it change what's required to spend money? For example, could he fund states and cities under the declaration of a national emergency? Could he, uh, you know, that right now the states and cities are in horrendous shape. Teachers are getting laid off and schools can't afford to properly bring kids back to school because they can't afford what it takes to make it safe for COVID. Fire departments, police departments, teachers, I mean, on and on. Uh, without the Senate, can an emergency declaration allow that kind of spending power? I don't know off the top of my head um, whether an emergency declaration allows that kind of power. I, I do think it shows that uh, the continuing resolution in order to uh, keep the government afloat uh, is going to be the first major test for whether Biden is uh, going to play Mitch McConnell's game or not, uh, if he is going to concede left, right, and center in order to uh, just get something passed, or if he's going to recognize that he has more leverage than he thinks that he does, um, and if he's actually going to stand up for the people. Okay, final thing. Biden picks up the phone and calls you, and he says, okay, what are the first few of executive orders I should do? What's your answer? 
Uh, first and foremost, I would say again, uh, student debt forgiveness. Student debt is the largest category of consumer debt in this country now. Uh, if you eliminate 95% of that, that is a sea change overnight in the global economy. Um, I would. It's like a trillion dollars, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I would say uh, clear out Trump's um, appointees at the DOJ, install your own people and have them immediately start prosecuting big corporations for their lawbreaking. Um, Obama did not clean house at DOJ and that led to disasters down the road. Biden needs to do that day one. You can do that day one. Uh, and it would send an extraordinary message to see uh, DOJ lawyers uh, bringing court cases left, right and center against corporate America. Um if I had to pick a last one, um, I might honestly say decriminalizing cannabis. Um, that's something which uh, the executive branch can do on its own. It sends a very clear message. Uh, it reallocates certain resources. Uh, and it also begins a larger conversation, a larger honest conversation about the war on drugs and then through that about race in America. Uh, all of these things, I think, are crucial. All right, great. Thanks very much for joining us, Max. Thanks for having me. And just tell us where people can find these, uh, where can people find this information? Sure. You can go to therevolvingdoorproject.org. That's therevolvingdoorproject.org. I would also recommend checking out the American Prospects Day One Agenda, which is all about uh, tools that the executive branch can do uh, on its own in order to improve people's lives. Again, that's the Day One Agenda at the American Prospect. Great. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. page.